Amen. You can have a seat. Let's take our Bibles. Let's go to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. Appreciate it, bro. Yeah, it's a lot of books, I know. Acts chapter 12, we've been in this chapter for the last uh, two weeks. This is week three, and we will see how this brings it to conclusion. It is Super Bowl Sunday, and occasionally people will send me and Justin uh, memes. Uh, we got one um, this past week that said, you should be just as excited about the gathering of the church as the Super Bowl. So when your pastor makes a point this morning or this week, pour Gatorade over his head. Please do not do that, okay? But... Um, if you hang out with people tonight, should be a, should be a fun day. I'm always for anything with the Eagles in it, so that just kind of gives you a tip where I'm at. Anyway, Acts chapter 12 is, uh, is where we'll be. We'll be finishing out the chapter this morning. This, uh, this past weekend in uh, our small group, um, the small group Lauren and I uh, are a part of, we, we kind of talked about as Justin last week reminded us that we are we're soldiers, soldiers of Christ. And how last week that the church couldn't fight along any lines but what? Prayer. Uh, he quoted Adrian Rogers that the door was shut in every way, but the door of prayer was always open. And so the church availed themselves to that. That is how they fought. And I want, what we we're talking about small group, we were talking about how that soldier theme, and then it, it got brought up in our small group how we got to remind ourselves that we're part of a spiritual conflict. That our struggle really isn't just against flesh and blood. It's not against flesh and blood. It is against principalities and powers. It against rulers in the heavenly realms. It is a spiritual conflict where Satan is doing all that he can to oppose the advancement of the kingdom of God as Jesus builds his church across the world. You, you know why there's 0% evangelicals in Turkey this morning? Is because... Satan is working to stop the advancement of the gospel. But a text like this this morning that we're going to study helps me greatly to be able to pray for the Turks. You know why I was thinking this morning we were praying? All seven churches in Revelation in chapter 2 and 3, you know where they were? Modern day Turkey. The, the church that we're going to study, <clears throat> that's the sending church. Justin will jump into that next week. You know where they are? As Justin mentioned earlier, Turkey. Most of Paul's missionary journeys started or worked around Turkey. A lot of the New Testament epistles were in Turkey. And so as we see that this morning, it can be frustrating or disappointing, but it reminds us that Satan never has the final say. The enemies of God never have the final say. And so no matter the situation... We are, uh, we are able to, to pray. Before we jump in the text, I want us to pray uh, for, and I ask if we could do this, Brian Belrose, he and his wife Estralith are members here. His dad does not have a very good prognosis on his life. Um, his dad's got cancer, and so Brian's flying to Montana tonight to hang with his dad. For the next week, his, name, his, his dad's name is Mr. Richard Belrose. So I told Brian we'd pray as a church. So I'm going to pray that, that Brian gets to spend great time with his dad, but good conversations will be there. And um, I, I think I can share this. You know, you're, you're kind of, you don't know where your dad stands, you know, with the Lord right now. And so we want to pray for that. So Brian's going to leave tonight. Um, and uh, so let, let's pray. Isn't that cool that we can just pray, right? We can just stop and pray. So let's pray for Mr. Richard. Let's pray for Brian. Big layover, I think, too, bro, as you, as you travel. But let's pray. Uh, and, and, I would, and I would just say this because we're not professionals, so we can just do this. If you have a need that you'd like the church to pray for because there's power when we all pray together, right? Like, we, you're, you can do that. Just hit us up, okay? So we're going to pray for Richard Belrose. We're going to pray for Brian. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we come to you. We thank you that as a church we can come before the throne. God, we thank you that we have access. We don't have to, we don't have to purchase our access to you, Lord, by our works or by uh, uh, deeds that Jesus has purchased us by his blood direct access before your throne. And God, we come before you as the church, and we pray for the Belrose family. Lord, we pray for Brian as he travels. God, we, we thank you that, that he's able to, to go see his father in, in North Montana. And God, we pray for traveling mercies today. God, we pray that even along the way, you'll remind him of your grace and your presence. And Lord, you'd even enable him to be able to encourage people and be encouraged along the way. God, we do pray for, for his father as he's got this prognosis of cancer and other medical issues. But God, more importantly, we pray for his heart, pray for his soul. 
And God, we pray over the next however many days that you would give his dad a right state of mind where he could think and he could communicate. Lord, we pray for Brian as he loves his father and gets to spend time with his father. But God, we do pray that there will be opportunities for Christ to be shared. And God, we pray that if Mr. Richard doesn't know you, Lord, we pray that he would come to know you. God, we ask that before your throne. Lord, we, we pray that you would work, work in him. And, and Lord, it would, it would be uh, a, a special time as Brian spends with his father. God, we're thankful that, that you are with us in every walk of life. Lord Jesus, on this earth, you know about what it meant to, to lose your adopted earthly dad. And God, we're, we're thankful that you walk with us no matter what. God, as we look at the text this morning, I pray you'd encourage our hearts, challenge us. Your word's so good. And teach us and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 12, where we'll be this morning, spiritual conflict. Herod has, at the beginning of the chapter, he stretched out his hand. Remember that? And we, we saw execution. We saw he had James executed. James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, one of the 12 apostles, he, he killed him. Then later he imprisons Peter. Last week, Justin walked us through the escape part that God miraculously, for the third time, wouldn't it be cool to be Peter, right? This is the third time that you've been freed. This is the second time you've been freed by an angel. That's some great campfire stories, right? I mean, so, so, so Peter's been spared uh, a third time, and now here is Herod. This last part of the chapter is Herod really trying to uh, maybe prove to himself that he is still in control. I was listening to, uh, to, to a preacher the last few weeks, trying to think, bounce thoughts in my head off of stuff. And a, a statement was made where the, the Herodian dynasty here, this is nothing more than just the latest attempt to overthrow God's purposes. Think about the scriptures, right? The Tower of Babel, there's a guy named Nimrod, got a bunch of people to try to climb to the sky. Guess what? God stopped it, Right? Then you move on, let my people go. Pharaoh says no. Ten plagues later, guess what? God wins. You, you, get, to, you get to Joshua. You get to all the, the kings that would oppose God's people taking the promised land. Guess what? They were crushed. So you move on, you think about the Midianites and the Philistines and the book of Judges and, and God's anointed king, David. They opposed God. Guess what? They were crushed. There's, there's one uh, instance in in the, the history books where the Assyrians came against Israel. And in one night, the angel of the Lord went and killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. And the next day they ran back scared. They were crushed. You, you remember in the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar got arrogant and the Lord basically let him like go insane for a time period until he remembered that it was God who appointed kings and kingdoms. There was another king in, uh, in Daniel he takes the goblets of the, the temple of God that the Babylonians had brought back from Jerusalem, and they're drinking and getting hammered with all of this goblets that were taken from the Lord's house. And a hand appears and writes in the wall, and that king loses his kingdom and is killed that very night. So now Herod is trying to do his thing. Just for kicks and giggles, let me throw up again the Herodian dynasty chart. And I want to show you something. There's one out there, and I don't keep putting it up there because I made this. I didn't. I, I, I gave credit where credit's due. Notice this. One generation, the Herodian dynasty starts with Herod the Great. Guess who he tried to kill? Jesus. His son, Herod Antipas, killed John the Baptist. This was also the guy that mocked Christ when Jesus was sent back and forth during his trial from Pontius Pilate to Herod Antipas. Now, third generation, Agrippa has killed James and imprisoned Peter. Later on, we'll find in the book of Acts that Agrippa's son, Agrippa II, Paul stands before him, and Paul shares the gospel with him, but he doesn't believe. What's the point? This is a track record now of over 50 years of this one family trying to oppose the purposes of God. And guess what we find out this morning in Acts chapter 12? God turns the tables. God flips the script. God continues marching over those who oppose his rule and purposes. Let's read the text, Acts chapter 12, beginning in verse 18. 
Peter has just been rescued. So what happened? Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the centuries and ordered that they should be put to death. And then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain or assistant, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God, and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. When we stopped last week, we still have to ask this question, who's in charge? Because is Peter going to be freed only to be rescued again? Because he's already been arrested twice, right? And then he gets arrested again, and, and Herod's going to kill him. Herod Agrippa's going to kill him. So really, who's in charge? That's what we're, we want to see here. Is, is the Herodian dynasty the latest to come about and stand against God, and will they conquer it's a small church in Jerusalem that has just recently expanded into Antioch. What are they against Rome? What are they against the empire? What are they against uh, a king that's been put in power by Caesar? And if you'll remember, as we've walked through this chapter, early on it looked like Agrippa was up one to nothing after James got killed, right? But what do we find out? Agrippa, by killing James, had already fulfilled the words of Jesus, right? Right? So it's not Agrippa 1, Jesus 0. It's Jesus 1, Agrippa 0. Last week, he's going to bring Peter out, and he's going to kill Peter in the same way. What's going to happen to Peter? The church prays. Peter gets rescued. So now, guess what? It's Jesus 2, Agrippa, nothing. We don't have a football game here, more like a hockey game, because there's three stages, like three. What do they have in, in periods, right? You know, you get two intermissions. So this is like a hockey match, and it's all setting up for this third and final scene Herod going to mount a late comeback and defeat Jesus? No, what we're going to see this morning is this clean sweep. I want you to see first in the passage Herod's rage and humiliation. Herod's rage and humiliation. Peter is rescued, and as Justin pointed out to us last week, he departs to another place. He may have gone to Antioch. We, we have him later on going to Antioch. Not sure where he went. But as Justin mentioned to us, Peter slips off the scene and in a lot of ways slips off the scene in Acts only to reappear one time in Acts chapter 15. But it says that when the day came, there was no little disturbance. The word disturbance there in the Greek is like fear and trepidation. They started losing their minds because they looked around and they said, where is Peter? In the Roman law, that, that didn't really apply to Agrippa's jurisdiction, although because he was a friend of Caesar, you'll see in a little, little later, he wanted to be like Caesar. In the Justinian Code, there was a law in Roman law that said if a prisoner is guarded by a soldier and that prisoner escapes, the soldier must suffer whatever fate the prisoner was to be suffered. You probably know the story later in Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas are in prison. God sends an earthquake. All the doors open up. And you remember what the jailer did? He pulled out his sword. Why? He's going to kill himself. Now, he's, he was a Roman soldier, right? So, so what's happening here? The, the, these aren't Roman soldiers. These are Agrippa's soldiers. But yet they fear what's going on. They don't know what's going to happen yet, but they say, this ain't good. And can you imagine the guys outside be like, dude, he was chained to you. What happened? Well, well it doesn't matter that he was chained to me. He got by you. Well, what happened? And there's this disturbance and eventually they report to their boss, and they report to their boss, and they report to their boss. And so in verse 19, the real boss hears it, and it says, Herod searched for him and did not find him. And then it says that he examined the centuries. This probably meant almost not just like 
inquisiting them. But this is probably to the point of torture. Trying to figure out where Peter went. Who paid you off? Who bribed you? Who did all this? Of course, they don't have any answers. So it says that he ordered that they should be put to death. Literally in the Greek, it says that he sent them away. So what this shows us is a couple things. It, it shows us that Herod fully intended to kill Peter. He fully intended to kill Peter probably in the same way that he killed James. You remember why he killed James by beheading? You remember that? The, in Deuteronomy, if you got a guy that's turning a whole city to go against false gods, what do you do? You don't stone them. You take them outside and you kill them because their whole life has been turning people towards idolatry. So Herod's trying to please the Jews. Hey, just like I killed James, I'm going to kill Peter. They're turning people against you. They're turning you against foreign gods. Get, the, get bonus points with the Jews. All of this. So what does Herod do? Enrage. He punishes these guards. We don't know if he killed the four that were guarding Peter. We don't know if he killed all 16 that were a part of the attachment. You know, someone like, dude, I wasn't even there. I was at the, I was at the house. I got alibis. He possibly killed them as well. We see here, check this out, how really opposed Herod is to God's kingdom, whether consciously or unconsciously. And we see the real issue is not Herod trying to get power on the earth side of things. This is Herod being used willfully as a tool of an enemy of God to oppose the advance of God's kingdom. Now we're told in 2 Timothy that we should correct our opponents with gentleness for this reason, that we should want God to grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth because they have been taken captive by Satan to do his will. So when we see people opposing the church, when we see enemies of the church, you know why our first prayer is not, God, kill them all, God, slay them all, God, may, your, may you get all of the wicked men out of the way so the gospel can come through. Because guess what? Those people need repentance too. Those people can be forgiven. Don't we already have that? Before Agrippa, there was Paul, right? And what did God do with him? He saved him. So sometimes, you know how God gets rid of opponents? He saves them. <laughs> and that's why we should pray that way. So when we get frustrated at leaders, when we get frustrated at people, our first response shouldn't be, take them out. Maybe our prayer should be, Lord, take them in. <laughs> but notice what it says in verse 19. He went down from Judea to Caesarea, and he spent time there. After treating these soldiers like pawns, expendable, I didn't get what I wanted out of you, I'm just going to kill you, he goes down to Caesarea. Caesarea is north of Jerusalem. This is not just a geographical statement, because Jerusalem is higher in elevation. Caesarea is by the seashore. It's almost as Luke is, is saying like, Agrippa was humiliated. He was downcast. He basically took his toys and his little wagon and pouted all the way back to Caesarea. Now, do you see God's grace in this? You remember earlier in Acts what Gamaliel told us in Acts 5? You remember when Peter and John were arrested and Gamaliel stands up for the council? And he's like, hey, y'all better be very careful. Like, if this thing's of man, it'll, it'll be over and done with. You remember what Gamaliel said? You probably remember what he said. He said, but if you use it and it's of God, what will you find yourself? You will find yourself fighting against God. And this is almost as if God doesn't, doesn't do anything physically, personally to Agrippa right here. It's almost as if God is giving Agrippa one final opportunity to understand who is God. Because his whole plan's been foiled. Yeah, he killed James, but guess what? The prize, Peter, we don't know what happened to Peter. We can't find him. I've killed the guards. I'm angry, but I'm ultimately, I'm humiliated. It's almost as if God is saying again, Agrippa, just turn. Look at these people. Look at this magnificent. Look, look, at, look, at, look at these people that are willing to die on my behalf. Look at these people that... <laughs> 
that I come through time and time again. But Agrippa doesn't take it at all. Can I just share with you this morning? Perhaps in your life this morning, the reason why you're going through certain circumstances that you've created is because it's God in his grace trying to get your attention. Like sin really is rebellion against God. And God is very patient. He's long-suffering. He doesn't want any to perish. He wants all to come to repentance. Doesn't mean if you're sitting in a palace as King Agrippa, doesn't matter if you're just selling stuff on the street. Everybody is of equal value to God, and the gospel is for all. And this morning, I would just tell you, quit fighting against God. John MacArthur said it this way. You know why we don't fight against God? Because God always fights back. And Agrippa's about to learn that lesson. Rage and humiliation. Secondly, this morning, I want you to see Agrippa's hunger for glory in God's judgment. So he goes back to Caesarea, and some time passes. Now, I kind of want to fill in the details. I'm going to read a few verses. I'll fill in some of the details. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, verse 20. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day. Stop. Now we know the end of this story happens in AD 44. We know that. So what you got to realize is, if we're trying to figure out where this took place and, and what's going on, there were games in Caesarea that happened every five years. Herod the Great, Agrippa's grandfather, built Caesarea. He named it in honor of Caesar Augustus. And every five years, they would have games in March. That would precede Passover time, okay? So this appointed day is happening for one of two reasons. It's happening, these games that they would have every five years. So what that would mean is that Peter's rescue took place in AD 43. And this is a year later, in March of 44. Or the reason why Agrippa could have had a celebration like this was in honor of the Emperor Claudius. His birthday was August the 1st. We know that from history. Which almost makes sense because Peter would then be rescued somewhere in April of AD 44. And three and a half months later, guess what? Agrippa is having this festival in honor of the emperor. We're told that the occasion was in verse 20 that he was angry at the people of Tyre and Sidon. Caesarea is on the coast of the Mediterranean. Right north of it is the cities of Tyre and Sidon. They were not under his jurisdiction, but they had commercial trading partnerships. And if, you, if you're a student of the Bible, you can, just, you can write this down. Back in 1 Kings chapter 5, 1 Kings chapter 5, we see King Solomon and King Hiram of Tyre trading back and forth. Solomon needed logs for the temple. And so guess what they did in, in his kingdom? Man, he had grain and food, and he sent beaded oil and, and grain. Like, I don't, I don't know what a, I can't even remember what the measurement was, but it was like 20,000 of something of wheat and 20,000 something of beaten oil Solomon sent. So this trade partnership between what would be Palestine and Tyre and Sidon and the Phoenicians had been going on for a long time. We don't know what caused the disruption, but Herod gets angry. Imagine that. That's what we're told about him, right? He just got angry at soldiers. Now he's angry at the people of Tyre and Sidon. And so they reach out to this guy named Blastus. Now we're told the ESV says that he's the king's chamberlain. Literally in the Greek, it's only one time it's used here. It, it means like the person over the bedchamber. It, it's basically Luke's way of saying somebody really close to the king. Um, Lauren and I, we've, with our parents a few years back, we were in, we were in D.C., and this is when President Trump was, was in office. And it was the week that George H.W. Bush, President George H.W. Bush, passed away, and he was lying in state. We were taking a tour of the White House. It was like pretty wild. You know, that, that week we got to see former president lying in state. But we're in, we're in the White House, and we're on the first floor taking a tour. And my father-in-law, like, walks up to a Secret Service agent. He goes, is he here? Is he here? And the Secret Service agent's standing who, sir? You know, is he here? <laughs> Secret service agent goes, sir, there's a president's funeral this week. Because there were, there were like five presidents in town. You know, it was, it was, Trump was there, uh, Clinton was there, 
W. Bush was there, Obama was there. So, I mean, there was five presidents, you know, and at the funeral. So it was just like, yes, he's here, you know? My father-in-law loves just doing that. He loves talking in code. You can talk to Lauren about that later. Anyway, is he here? This was one of those guys that would know where Agrippa was at all times. So probably through like bribing, tire inside and get through to Agrippa. And let's just be honest, they come here to kiss his butt. Like that's what they're doing, okay? They're, they're, they're there to like to, to just, you know, this is, okay, you're, you're great and fabulous. And of course, Agrippa takes it in. And so possibly in August, late summer of 44, or early spring 44, he has this grand assembly. And the amphitheater where it happened is still in Caesarea. They, they unearthed it. It's pretty wild. This is the same place later on. I'm just full of history facts this morning. I'm just telling y'all, I just groovy this week in study, man. I love, love how all this stuff connects. This is the same place where Paul later would defend himself. So what's wild is this great crowd assembles. And why in verse 20, they are asking Herod for peace. Quit being angry at us. Why? Because their country depended on the king's country for food. They needed the wheat and grain from Galilee. They needed from Palestine's bread basket. And Herod had apparently shut it off. And so they come to pay homage. And on this appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes. Notice he sits upon the throne and he delivers an oration to them. I mean, this dude wasn't Caesar, but he sure tried to act like him, you know? Now, what's amazing, I'll have uh, a few of these books at the back just for you to take pictures if you want. This is, uh, this is Josephus. He was a Jewish historian. And almost like word for word, what Luke shares here is what Josephus recorded. Now, just, I'll, I'll read it here in just a minute. But I want you to notice specifically that it says that on this appointed day, Herod puts on royal robes, he took his seat upon his throne, and he delivered an oration. That's what Josephus says. This is in the Antiquities of the Jews. This festival, a great multitude, was brought together of principal persons, and they were of dignity. On the second day, Herod put on a garment made wholly of silver and of a contexture truly wonderful. And he came into the theater early in the morning, at which the silver of his garment, being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it, shone out after a surprising manner, and was so resplendent as to spread a horror over those who intently looked upon him. And presently his flatterers cried out, one from one place and another from another, though not for his good, that he was a god. And they added, be thou merciful to us. For although we have reverenced thee only as a man, we shall henceforth own thee as superior to mortal nature. Herod was known for his orations. In, in the Mishnah, there is this, this Jewish writing. There, there's, he was half Jewish, and so he's standing in the temple, and he gives this speech. And halfway through it, he's reading out of Deuteronomy that no foreigner shall, shall come close to the temple. And he puts on like this waterworks and he starts weeping and crying. And the crowd says, no, 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 no. You're one of our brothers. You're one of our brothers. And that's what he pulls right here is that he comes out with this garment on made of whole silver early in the morning, strategic, right? So when the crowd sees him, he reflecting this bright shining light. And he sits down on the throne and he pulls one of these speeches again, trained as he was and being brought up in Rome. Luke says, and the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. Josephus fills in these details here. Josephus goes on to say, upon this, the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. Joseph is a Jew. So check this out. Herod, standing, then seated, fabricated glory, <laughs> just a way to reflect the sun. He's not glorious, but he's found a way to reflect it. A borrowed throne, 
given to him by Rome because he kisses up to people. And he gives this flattering speech where he knows these people are going to do this and cry out to him to flatter him because they need. So he's there basking in it all. And at that moment, verse 23 says, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. Josephus. A severe pain arose in his belly and began in a most violent manner. His pain became violent. Accordingly, he was carried into the palace and the rumor went abroad everywhere that he would certainly die in a little time. But the multitude sat in sackcloth with their wives and children after the law of their country and besought God for the king's recovery. All places were also full of mourning and lamentation. Now the king rested in a high chamber, and as he saw the people below lying prostrate on the ground, he could not himself forbear weeping. And when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, he departed this life, being in the 54th year of his age and in the seventh year of his reign. What happened to him? It's very interesting here in the midst of basking in his own glory, of his own made-up glory, an angel strikes him. A couple different things possibly happened. Some people have said that maybe his appendix ruptured. But Luke uses a very, very unique word here. In the English we have, he was eaten by worms. Literally in the Greek, it's worm-eaten. And, and I don't mean to upset your, your stomach but, but, or your lunch or mess with your lunch. But, but I want you, for, for the sake, don't eat lunch because you're going to eat 6,000 calories later tonight, right? So listen, th this is pretty intense, but, but I think it begs for us to see what's really going on. Greek word here is a combination. The first word is skolex, which describes the head of a tapeworm. There is something called a hydatid cyst that's formed in the body because of tapeworms. In an agricultural society with goats and sheep, tapeworms exist. Possibly a, the way this would be transmitted, a dog would eat on some of that, and then it would fecal matter would pass on to a man due to like contaminated hair. So it's possible that he had some tapeworms inside of him and they formed this cyst. Now, let me read. This is MacArthur's commentary, but he's, he's quoting a book called Science in the Bible. The word scolax means a specific head structure of a tapeworm. Herod's death was almost certainly due to the rupture of a cyst formed by a tapeworm. There are several kinds of tapeworms, but one of the most common ones found in sheep-growing countries is the dog tape, Echinococcus granulosus. That doesn't sound good at all. The disease is characterized by the formation of cysts generally on the right lobe of the liver. These extend down into the abdominal cavity. The rupture of such a cyst may release as many 2 million tapeworm larvae. When the cyst ruptures, the entrance of cellular debris along with the larvae may cause sudden death. What's amazing about these cysts is sometimes they can calcify. And they can sit in the host in the person for years. Isn't it interesting, in the moment of his greatest glory, he refuses to give God the glory, and God says, that's it. What probably happened, this cyst erupted. Your internal organs are kind of in this crude way to say it, like this Ziploc bag. <laughs> and these larvae went everywhere. He should have died most likely in like 12 to 24, maybe 36 hours. But Josephus tells us that he lasted for five days. And it's almost like it was a divinely prolonged suffering because of judgment. Now, we've seen this in Acts, haven't we? Acts 2, we've seen God save 3,000. Acts 5, we've seen God take out two people that lied to the Holy Spirit, right? In this passage, what have we seen? God saves Peter, but here God strikes down Herod. What's amazing about this is that Herod wanted to be a God, but God ultimately killed him. This whole chapter is full of hunger. Tyre and Sidon hungry for food. Herod hungry for power, but God uses hungry worms to destroy Herod. Now listen to the contrast. This is very important. Listen to the contrast. 
I wrote these out, so let me read them. At the beginning of the chapter, Herod lays hands on James and Peter. At the end of the chapter, God lays hands on Herod. An angel strikes Peter and rescues him, but an angel strikes Herod and kills him. That's the great difference between a child of God and an enemy of God. Listen to the sovereign irony. While in jail, Peter was at peace inside. While in his palace, Herod was destroyed from the inside. The people prayed for Herod, God. How did God advance his kingdom? Verse 24 tells us he advanced it through the faithful sharing of his word. The word does not increase and multiply without people sharing the word for it to increase and multiply. Both of these are in the imperfect tense in the Greek, which means it kept on increasing. It kept on multiplying. Not the actual content of the word, but the effect of the word. The seed of the word found new hearts. The seed of the word found new neighborhoods. The seed of the word found new families. The seed of the word found new communities. The seed of the word went forward. Jesus was growing his church. Jesus was keeping his promise. If we want to see the kingdom advance, even in the midst of opposition, guess what? We must continue to share the word of God. And I hope you've learned in this chapter that God advances his kingdom even through our suffering sometimes. There was another way that God advances kingdom in verse 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. This is where we ended in chapter 11. And so Luke has one last look at the church of Jerusalem, and then he bookends this and, and brings it back in. Now, we don't know exactly when this happened in regards to the events of chapter 12, but the point is this. God had thought about the church of Jerusalem. God was working in the church of Jerusalem, and God was using the church at Antioch to serve the church of Jerusalem. God advances his kingdom not just through the faithful sharing of his word, but God advances his kingdom through the faithful serving of his people. We need accountability in our life. We need accountability for each other. If you're not plugged in a small group, they're not perfect, they're not professional, but get in one. You need that in your life. If you aren't talking to somebody every week about what God's doing in your life, you need that. And here's the picture. Barnabas and Saul come to Jerusalem and they say, hey, Antioch's thinking about you. Hey, God brought you to our minds through this prophet named Agabus. God loves you. And we wanted to show his love to you by taking up a collection. Can you imagine how that much blessed Jerusalem? And the picture here is that Barnabas and Saul were faithful to do it. Can I just tell you, this week, if God brings a Christian to your mind, it is, it is that there for a reason. Shoot them a text message. Call them up. We need to be emphatically affirming and encouraging each other in the ways of the Lord. Like if somebody comes to your mind, like in the middle of the night, if you get woken up, like I'm not saying like call them and I just want to call you at 3.30 and wish you encouragement in the Lord. Like, no. Wait till after 8. But you know what? God may keep you up to pray for somebody. And this is what we see. This is how God advances his kingdom. I just want to make note of, of one more thing before we wrap up. 1224 is one of those summary statements that Luke's made. He's, he's made one back in 6-7. He's made another one in 931. And here, here it is. And this is what happened. Think about after chapter 6. Chapter 5, they had Ananias and Sapphira. And they had the disruption because the widows were getting overlooked. And so what did the church? The church responded rightly. And what happened? The word went forth. More disciples were made. Chapter 9, they've had the big persecution with Saul of Tarsus. But guess what? God saved Saul. And guess what? The word continues to go forth. Here it is in chapter 12. One of the apostles gets killed. Another one slips out of the, the limelight. But guess what? This train's still going. And aren't you thankful in the last 2,000 years? Every time someone has tried to take Jesus down, Jesus just shows the next latest thing that he is king. Tertullian, the early church apologist, said this, Go on, good governors. The mob will think you all the better if you sacrifice Christians to them. Crucify, torture, condemn, destroy us. Your injustice is the proof of our innocence. 
For that reason, God allows us to suffer these things. Your cruelties, though each be more elaborate than the last, do not profit you. They serve rather as an attraction to our group. The more you mow us down, the greater our numbers become because our blood is the seed from which new Christians spring. That's the attitude of a church that knows Jesus is in control. Take James out, somebody will rise up. Imprison Peter, God will let somebody loose because God has the final say. What do we learn this morning? Just a few take-homes for you. Number one, it is futile to fight against God. Surrender to him. You're not going to win. You can get God, only God can judge me, tatted on your shoulder. Guess what? You're not going to win that either. You will not defeat him. Can I just tell you this? You don't have to crawl your way back to him and do a thousand good deeds to try to overcome because you could never do that. He sent his son who was treated like a rebel so that you and I could be treated like sons and daughters. Son was outcast so that we could be taken in. The son was forsaken so that we could be welcomed. And we only come to God through the death and resurrection of what his son did for us. So this morning, check this out. You don't have to try to start being a good person. You can't. Admit your guilt and take on the righteousness of Christ offered for you. Quit trying to fight God. Like quit. That's what it means to repent. There's an invitation this morning. Repent of your rebellion. Don't be Agrippa. We also learn that God always gets the last word and he judges righteously. God sees when James gets beheaded. God sees when Peter gets put in prison. God takes notice. Nothing slips by his mind or his eyes. He knows he will take care of his people. Justin, after he read the Psalms, was back there and I said, hey, did you, did you get the, uh, did, you, did you see it? Because we're always trying to, like, we, we don't plan this. We just, we always expect maybe the Holy Spirit to connect something in our reading or the worship service with what we're preaching. And here it is, y'all, again. Psalm 4, 3. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. You know what? God gets the final word because when James gets beheaded, you better start singing Johnny Cash. God's going to cut you down, Agrippa. He's coming. If you don't repent, he's coming because he judges righteously. It's not for us to take vengeance, but one day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And those who have waited upon his appearing, who in this life have bowed their knees and their heart and embraced Christ as Lord of all and the great treasure of their heart, guess what? It will be worth it. He is worth it. Finally, there's only one kingdom that will last forever. God will overcome every opposition to his purposes. Yeah, Agrippa II is going to come, but by the end of the first century, guess what? There are no more Herods. There are no more Herodians. There's no more, I don't know, however many derivatives of the name Herod you can possibly come up with. Foo! Done! And the kingdom marches on. Isn't that amazing? I didn't have to tell you who a fisherman a podunk fisherman, redneck fisherman from the shores of Galilee was, but I had to teach you about this 150-year-old Herodian dynasty because God's people succeed in the end. Because God wins in the end. That's right, Red. <laughs> I'm writing a paper right now for school, and it's about how God uses martyrdom killing of Christians to accomplish his purposes. And I was reading a book from one of my buddies in India yesterday, and I remember being in a pastor's conference in North India and about a decade ago, I think it was 2013, 2014, <clears throat> and they just stopped the, the service because sometimes during pastor conferences we'll do a wedding like at the break or we'll do a baby dedication you know, four-hour church, let's just, whatever we, let's just pack it in there, right? Um, and something special happened, and just to let you know the backstory behind what was happening, eight years early than that, in 2006, my buddy had um, 
thousands upon thousands of dollars on his head as a bounty. They were, people were trying to kill him. Some, some radicals were trying to kill him because of their ministry and preaching the gospel. And so he and his father went into hiding because there were just a bunch of people out to, to try to kill him. So a lawyer reached out to him and said, would you please meet with me? I'll take your case. I'll represent you. You'll find asylum. You'll, you'll be protected. Come and meet me. So it appeared to be legitimate. And so he came out of hiding, went to a big city in India, and got out of his car and began to walk towards this lawyer's house. The lawyer stepped out on the second floor, greeted him, and as soon as he greeted him, police came from all sides, and there was a revolver put to my friend's head, and he was under arrest. It was a setup job. The lawyer set him up. He was brought back by a train to his hometown. There was a, a mob waiting. They were trying to set the train on fire. They were trying to kill him. So they took him down to another station, had over 100 police officers guarding him to take him to jail. He stayed in jail for 51 days. During that time, he faced all kinds of brutality. They let wild rats loose in his cell. He never was able to sleep, didn't have a toilet. But even in that jail, he began to share the gospel. One of the guys he shared the gospel with is an evangelist in England now. And he began to, in that jail, with a few other men, because of the testimony of Christ. The day after that lawyer set him up, that lawyer dropped dead of a heart attack. Because you don't touch God's people. There was a man that hated that ministry in their ministry's hometown and had done a lot to kind of stir up the locals against the ministry. Probably part of some of the mobs that were trying to kill my buddy. After he got out of jail, they all just went back to ministering, to preaching. A few guys had to remain in jail, but my buddy got out. And about six months later, he stands up on a Sunday morning and he's preaching and he looks out and in the crowd is the wife of this guy who stirred a bunch of people up. And in his mind, he said, here we go, set up job number two. She kept coming to the church. He just kept his distance. A few months later, she came to him. She said, I want to be baptized. I'm following Jesus. In his mind, he's like, there is no way we're baptizing this woman. I'll go back to jail. They'll burn the building down. So they just kept putting her off. About four months later, they were baptizing in their garage. They have this grate. You pick it up, and there's a water tank. And they were baptizing. She came and jumped in. She said, no, you must baptize me. I'm following Jesus. They baptized her. She began to follow the Lord. Her and her husband tried to have children. They couldn't. She finally looked at him one day. She said, if you quit worshiping those idols and come to Jesus, then we could have a child. It's bold. So back at the pastor's conference, I'm sitting there next to my buddy. On the other side of me is this guy named Nathaniel who was put in prison with my buddy for four months. And stuff starts happening on the stage. I lean over to my buddy, hey, what are we doing? Oh, we gotta do baby dedication. Okay, baby dedication. So he goes up there. Here comes a man walking down the aisle. Wife's with him, baby boy. Turns out it's the woman who got saved and jumped in the baptistry to be baptized. And here was her husband who was now coming to the church. And here was their brand new baby boy. And they were walking up to dedicate this baby. And guess who oversaw the baby dedication was my buddy that this guy had got thrown in jail. And so what's pretty cool in Indian culture sometimes, like I've had to name babies before. There's like some random baby in like West Bengal named Lauren because they said name this baby. I've named in other babies, other places. But they like, they like look. And so they look to my buddy and they say, okay, you give the name, pastor. You give the name for the baby. <laughs> and he looks over at his friend, Nathaniel, that was thrown in jail. And he says, baby will be called Nathaniel. Full circle. Because that's how God works. 
and there may be blood, and there may be suffering, and we may lose somebody along the way, but his kingdom marches on. And I don't care who Agrippa is, and I don't care how big he thinks he is. There's only one king that sits on the throne, and his name is Jesus. You can't impeach him. You can't overthrow him. You can't outvote him. You're not going to outlast him. He is king of kings and Lord of lords, and there is no other. The word of God continued to increase and multiply. It's futile to fight against God, especially a God who's willing to save you, especially a God who's willing to walk with you. Let's pray. Lord, sometimes we don't know what to call you. Your father and yet your king. Lord Jesus, you are Lord and yet the scripture says you're our elder brother. Spirit, you are our paraclete, our great helper, our comforter, our guide. So many things, Lord, we could call you this morning, but we thank you that you are sovereign that there is no one beside you, that there is no one equal to you. That like Psalm 2 says, the rulers of this world seek to overthrow the Lord and his anointed, and he just laughs. So God, I pray this morning, if somebody in this room has not taken refuge in the king yet, that this morning, that they would submit and honor and kiss the son. There's no reason to face the wrath of God. Lord, we're thankful that when you strike us, you strike your people to save us, not to kill us. God, we're thankful that Christ was struck on our behalf that we could know the love of God. God, we're thankful that in the midst of a jail cell, we can have peace. God, we're thankful that you don't share your glory with anyone. We're thankful that your kingdom will never end. So Lord, my prayer is you'll take the word and you'll move it in our hearts and you'll work it in our hearts. You'll bring people to a place of repentance and faith if they don't know Christ. God, you'll encourage your people. You'll lift them up. God, that we'll understand that our prayers matter and they can be heard. And God, you use our prayers to bring about your purposes. So God, work the word in our hearts today. As we sit before the Lord, how's he spoken to your heart this morning? If he's calling you to himself to be saved, repent, end your rebellion, seek refuge in the cross, he will receive you and save you. In just a moment when we stand and sing, we'll have pastors at the back of the room. If you need somebody to pray with you, if you need to talk to somebody, we'll be at the back. If you're a Christian and, man, you're struggling, you need some prayer, we'll be back there for you as well. Let's worship this king whose kingdom will never end. Christ alone. Let's stand and sing this. Lead us, Daniel.